If you have your scriptures, please open them to Revelation chapter 22. And this life will one day be like this sermon series. Over. Today, today is the, the last segment of this sermon series, 37 to be exact. And we started, I believe, back in June 2017. And if you're our first-time guest here, you had no idea we were in Revelation. Probably, unless you were online and you had no idea this would be the last, just like someday we will wake up in the morning and be about our regular rhythms and not realize it's our last day. Whether we breathe our last or whether the Lord returns, there will come a time when it is over. So that's why I have entitled this sermon, The End Is Now. doesn't mean I'm predicting and putting a time on the Lord's return, um, but in Revelation 22, it is over but it's only begun. Isn't that a great thought? Um, the burdens we carried in here this morning, our hearts are heavy. Sometimes I believe the more and more like Christ we become, the more we understand that He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we, we're under those burdens as we see even those we love, those we believe are born again, just walk in this world and pick up the filth of this world. And it's, it's hard sometimes to remain joyful about those things. Um, so we pray and we exhort and we admonish. And as we learned Wednesday, we reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching as we wait and watch for the Lord's return. That really is uh, what Revelation is all about. So we have now opened up to the final chapter of 1,189 chapters in the Scripture. And like we learned Wednesday, as we're learning not only how to study the Scripture, but how to study and teach it and apply it, um, we're going to come to Revelation 22 and ask this question. What does this chapter say? Because it says a lot. Not what can we say about this chapter, right? And, And therefore create all these colorful pictures, which is, which is the latter part of teaching, but initially, what does Revelation 22 say? And in this final chapter, God says a lot, even though it seems to be disjointed. Um, Here's what Revelation 22 says. First, there are three sayings of the angel, at least in our section, uh, beginning in verse 9. And these three sayings of the angel are this, Worship God only. Do not seal up these prophecies. And continue to live righteously in light of the end. And then second, there are seven sayings of Christ. Here they are. He says, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and Omega. There are blessings and warnings to the saved and unsaved. I have sent my angel to testify to the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Then he gives an invitation. Then he gives a warning. That's what Revelation 22 says. So let's look at this. Let's look at the angel's commands. Look again at, let's let's go back to verse 8. And look at what John does. Remember, John walked with our Lord on the earth. He is the one whom Jesus said is this disciple who loves me. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. He's telling you these visions were given to him, entrusted to him to write down and give to the churches. And when I heard and saw them... I fell down to worship, but there's a problem. See if you can see it. 
at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Is that a problem? Yes, that is a false object of worship. This has been the struggle throughout human history. This is the struggle even within the evangelical church. We choose wrong things to worship. It's possible that happened this morning. It's possible we worship a music style more than we worship God himself. It's possible I worship my preferences, my opinions, more than I worship God himself. And that can happen even when believers gather and sing to God. How do you know that's happening? How can you know if that's happening in your own heart? Because as you sit there, you're not ascribing worth to God. You're critical. You're hollow. You hear nothing of the Spirit's voice through the biblical text of hymns. And you're already ready to go home and pick it apart. And folks, that is not biblical worship. And do you know good people can do that? Do you know John can do that? John's problem wasn't music style. John's problem was he is so overwhelmed at these visions and he's so overwhelmed at this angel that he actually falls down to worship the angel. A seasoned disciple who's authored a gospel in three smaller letters and the only apocalyptic book we have in our New Testament. And John misses it. Right away, he's cut off. Look at what the angel says. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And I love these two words. Worship God. Misplaced worship has been a problem throughout the entire book. Sometimes it's through, through just brazen, stubborn rebellion, and other times it's subtle ignorance. But either way, once the object of worship is misplaced, we have become what? At least in that moment, we have become what? We have become idolaters when we no longer worship God, but worship other things. The basic message of the entire book from chapter 1, remember the incredible vision of Jesus Christ, where even John fell down as a dead man, and Jesus says, no, don't fear. I mean, John saw Jesus Christ in His glory in a way that apparently wasn't even captured at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Because John just sees Jesus Christ in Revelation 1 and falls down dead. And the message from the entire book, from chapter 1 to chapter 22, is this. There is only one worthy of worship. It's not the emperor. It's not the world. It's not a country. It's not a false religious leader. It's not even good angels. And listen to this. And it's not you. But there is one worthy of worship. And it is God on His throne and the Lamb. That's where the worship is focused. The Exodus account of the golden calf reminds us that left to ourselves, we, we quickly become slaves to our passions. Right? I mean, just think about the good leader who was left in charge, Aaron. And as soon as Moses is gone, what happens? They launch off into idolatry. And do you know, folks, there's nothing freeing about that? Do we understand there is nothing freeing about worshiping ourselves? That's slavery. There's nothing freeing about worshiping a style or a fashion or popular. There's nothing. 
And Jesus Christ came to free us from those things. Because he knew we were we were even slaves to good things. And he came to free us. Even John is tempted to worship that which is not God and therefore is not worthy to be worshipped. Okay, right after that, right after the angel says, worship God, look what he says next. Look at verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Okay, why is that so important? Here's why. This is a time for unveiling truth rather than hiding truth. These words are intended for publication. Uh, If we could use it in in modern vernacular, these words are supposed to go viral. It is supposed to be proclaimed. Don't seal them. Don't hide them. Proclaim them to the ends of the earth. In contrast, listen to what Daniel was told about his visions. I'm just going to read this to you out of Daniel chapter 8. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now listen to what, what he is told. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And here, what is he told? Don't seal it up. Why? Because the time is near. The time has been inaugurated. It's going to be fulfilled. Go out and proclaim it. And this actually provides an interpretive clue that Revelation addresses events that have actually started to happen in John's day. John, don't seal it up. This is for this time. It's starting to happen now. Matter of fact, this is, a, this is verbatim of chapter 1, verse 3. Let me just read that to you. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Why? For the time is near. And then you have that, the very third verse in the first chapter, and now you come to the very last chapter, and he's told, do not seal these up. The time is near. These things need to be known. Now, it may not seem near to some of us, right? We're growing weary and well-doing, even though we are told not to. We're wondering and we question if our labor is vain in the Lord, even though Scripture says your labor is not in vain. And I think this is in part um, living in this kind of a culture, in this kind of a world where we just basically want to go and give up. And I think we need this exhortation. The time is near. And, and, and it's not based upon our interpretation of nearness. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago? God's delays are what? God's delays are gracious. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's delays are gracious. So what is our response as believers? Worship God. Don't veil these things. Share them. Proclaim them. Look at the third thing the angel says. Look at verse 11. This is going to take a little bit of explanation. Let the evildoers still do evil. And let the filthy still be filthy, and let the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What does that mean? Let's be clear. God is not inviting anyone to continue in rebellion. Is that clear? God is not inviting, hey, you're filthy, just stay filthy. Because all along, He he has been inviting you to step out of the darkness and into the light. So what is He saying here? This, this language that is being used by the angel serves as a rhetorical function challenging unrepentance. Okay, we actually see this 
technique used in the biblical prophets. Let me give you a few examples. Isaiah uses this in Isaiah chapter 29. And listen to what he says. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Is he actually removing responsibility from the prophets and the seers from proclaiming the truth? No, he he is rhetorically, perhaps borderline sarcastically saying, oh no, God has poured out sleep upon you so that you don't even know what the truth is anymore. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands. Don't get lost in the language. Okay, so, so, so your household is professing something and actually working it out in your actions, saying, we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven. Let me ask you, is that a right object of worship? No, that's false worship. To make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Why is he saying that? And why would the angel say, if you're filthy, then be filthy still? God is inviting those who ignore his gracious warnings to face the consequences of their actions. If you're evil, then be evil and launch towards judgment. If you're filthy and you're okay with that and you're not going to turn from that, then stand before a holy God filthy. Okay, it, It's really a call to face the consequences of your choices. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 3, uh, verse 27. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. If that shocks us, and we're like, Oh yeah, those are just the prophets. They were angry, disgruntled curmudgeons. Listen to what Jesus taught. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Then he turns to who he's talking to. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? Okay, how, do we, how would we apply that? I mean, there's a lot of applications. But if we are under a delusion of our own pretense. And for one and a half to two hours during the week, we present ourselves a certain way. But that very afternoon, Sunday afternoon, all the way through to Saturday evening, I am something different. What comes out of my heart is rotten. What comes out of my thoughts is rotten. Then who am I? What is the truth of who I am? Is it, is it the perception I cast here or the perception I cast on social media? Or is it really who I am, how I'm functioning, what I'm saying, how I'm reacting within the privacy of my own home? Who am I? And we all know the answer, right? It's who I am when nobody's looking. 
Or it's who I am when I'm responding to my wife and there's no audience. Or it's who I am in how I interact with my children when I don't think anybody's listening. Because a tree will be known by its what? Its fruit. Jesus says this. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. A tree is to its fruit is what a person is to his heart and his words. Now, Jesus said this in another gospel. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what is the angel saying in this third statement? Make your choice now. For the day of choosing will expire soon. If you're going to persist in your filthiness, that's your choice. If you're going to persist in your unrighteousness, that's your choice. If you're truly a righteous person, we'll see that too. Matter of fact, God is saying He's going to judge based upon reality, but a reality that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not a reality that has been crafted for two hours a week. This is a very stunning statement for the angel to make. God wants you to repent. He gives this command not because He wants us to keep doing what is evil and filthy, but because He wants you to realize that your true actions and attitudes are a reflection of your heart regardless of what you say in public. God wants us to know there's a difference between what is filthy and holy, what is evil and right, and He wants us to perceive that difference and realize that we cannot change ourselves and that we call out to Him and the Lamb Matter of fact, we're going to see that exhortation by Christ in just a couple minutes. Sometimes we lose this teaching when we preach a fake grace that Jesus is coming and He is going to hold people personally responsible for what they have done. Jesus is coming and He is going to hold people personally responsible for what they have done. That's why his half-brother said, you tell me you have faith, you don't have any works to support it, I want to show you my faith by my works. Those two really go so hand in hand that they express whether a person's heart has truly been touched and transformed by God's grace or whether it hasn't. There will be a day when no one will hide behind the excuse that the devil made me do it. You're going to, you will have to give an account of yourself to God. No one will hide behind the excuse that God is somehow a puppeteer and these strings come down. We're all puppets. And basically, it's His fault from, for the way I, I behave. Because really, I can't do anything outside of what He does anyway, which is also a fake view of sovereignty. And no one will hide behind the excuse that somehow my DNA dictated I behave in certain ways and I'm not responsible. If you're filthy and you're ready to stand before God like that, Scripture says, go ahead. If you're righteous and you're ready to stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because you've washed your robe white, then you know you're ready. 
As Romans 1.20 says, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without what? They are without excuse. Do you know it's God's grace to tell us those things? Do you know why? Because if it were unclear throughout redemptive history in his revelation and we're like, well, maybe maybe it really does have to do with my own righteousness or maybe it really does have to do with somehow me entering into an ecclesiastical habit and somehow those cadences are going to earn me favor with God. It's very it's very gracious for God to say not by your works of righteousness. It's very gracious of God to say you will have no excuse. It is very gracious of God to say, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And it's gracious because then we know there is one way. One truth. One Lord. And no one goes unto the father except through him. That's how gracious these warnings are. It is a reminder that God will judge based on reality, based on responsibility. So look at the verse again. Let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Okay, so after three sayings of the angel, now we come to seven sayings of Christ. Let's look at those quickly. Christ's words, Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Separate, yet connected sayings, and the central point again, and, I want, and, and again, after the angel's warnings, you're going to realize this is the central point of Christ's words too. The central point is the emphasis on right living. Okay, right living. With 22, verse 12, stressing judgment by works. And 22, 14 to 15, separating the readers into clean and the filthy. Okay, so let's look at his first thing. He says this. I am coming soon. I think which we all would doctrinally agree with. But listen to what he adds. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. That's a reward to repay each one for what he has done. Okay. Are you ready for that? Like if I could just sit across from a coffee table with every single one of you and we could each ask one another that question. Okay, Jesus is coming back soon and he's bringing his reward and he's going to repay us, you and me, for what we've done. Are, are you ready for that? Am I ready for that? There are some minutes during the day when I'm ready for that. There are other minutes when that is a fearful reality. The force of this statement is to teach that on some level we will be judged by our works. We are never saved by our works. But on some level we will be judged by our works. If we could just put it in like a memorable a memorable statement. What we do in this life right now matters. And it matters for eternity. Let me read you another passage. The Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. By the way, who is Paul writing to? The saints at Corinth. These are believers. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So this building is not something the unbelievers are building. The foundation was laid, which is Jesus Christ. And now each is building upon that foundation. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, there's one category of materials. Or wood, hay, straw, there's another category of materials. Each one's work will become manifest. So in this past week, we have all been building, whether you realize whether that was the picture in your mind or not. There was a foundation in Christ. You say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ by grace alone. But Ephesians 2 says, you know, that we are saved not by works, but by grace, lest anyone boast. But then it says what? But we are we are his workmanship save for good works. The Apostle Paul is saying you can choose the material to build on that foundation. But then he says this, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, this day, this eschatological day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. So if you have been building with straw and Jesus Christ returns and he tries your huge straw empire that you have been working for years to build with fire, how much is left? Nothing. But if you've been building with gold and it's tried with fire, perhaps there's some impurity in that, but it will stand. This is what he's teaching. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, listen to what Paul says, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, not loss of salvation, but loss of potential reward. Can I, can I just ask you, what materials are you using right now? How have you been building? If you invited somebody to come in and see your, your you know, hey, the foundation's good. We all know that we, there's no disagreement there. What are you building? What materials are you using? And when the fire is really applied, what's left? It is appropriate that Jesus says, I am coming soon and I'm bringing my recompense, recompense with me to reward everyone for what he has done. What are we doing? Romans chapter 14 why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If your life is consumed with judging and despising other believers. You're going to suffer loss. That's wood, hay, and stubble. Listen to what he says next. Look at verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. This is the last of the Alpha Omega statements. What's unique about it is this is the only place in the entire book where all three types of that saying are put together. He's saying the same thing in different ways so we don't miss it. Listen, I'm coming soon. 
I'm bringing my reward with me to judge everyone according to the work he has done. I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Don't miss it. I am not judging by the perception you have crafted over the years. I am judging by the reality that I know every single thing about you. And by the way, so it doesn't remain negative. Here's the encouragement. Are you serving God that nobody notices? Are you loving your spouse when nobody's watching? Are you gently guiding your children when they show a stubborn heart and an unthankful spirit and you're gently guiding your child? But nobody notices and nobody's asking you to teach and nobody's asking you to write a book about it. The Alpha and the Omega knows. See, sometimes in our mindset, in our performance culture, we think God's going to come back and reward those who have always had the spotlight. Do you realize? I do believe I'll be judged for my preaching, but I think I will be judged more so for my living. I will be judged for how I have loved Tony. How I have gently led my family. How I have loved others that that aren't like me. How I have gone into cultures and loved people like Christ did. How I have to love people in this culture without becoming cynical or jaded or consumed by the materialism myself. And the encouragement is this. Even when nobody is looking and I choose a pure thought over a filthy thought, or a gentle response over a selfish response. There is one who is the bookends of all human history who knows. And when he comes back, he's going to reward. And he's not giving out honorary doctorates for those who seem to have accomplished a lot. He's giving out rewards based upon his pure and perfect knowledge. And folks, that ought to, I hope, that encourages you. says that this is the message to the church. Look at what he says next. Look at verse 14. This is the third statement. Blessed are those who wash their robes. See, the blessed ones aren't the ones who stay filthy and stay evil. Do you see that? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside. And he gives this partial list of those who by their habitual lifestyle, by an unrepentant lifestyle, will never see the city we've talked about. Will never see the city, Scripture describes. Outside are the dogs, the vicious ones, and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So how do you, how do you get the robe? Revelation 7, verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's why we sing about Jesus Christ. That's why we read Scripture about Jesus Christ. That's why we read the Gospels. That's why we talk about Him and pray to Him and thank Him. Chapter 16, verse 15 provides a warning. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. It's either the white garment or it is nothing in the eyes of Christ. Kevin DeYoung warns, 
Many Christians have never been taught that sorcerers and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood will be left outside the gates of heaven. So they do not have the guts or the compassion to say that the unrepentantly sexually immoral will not be welcomed in either, which is exactly what Revelation 21, 22 teaches, end quote. Look at, the, look at what he says next, first part of verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Jesus commissioned the angel to give these visions to John so that John would give these letters, this letter, not just the letters in chapters 2 and 3, but the entire letter to the church. Then he says this, further identity, look at the second part of verse 16. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He brings this up at this point, at the very close of this apocalyptic book, he adds two more titles that further explain who he is. We know he's the lamb, right? We know he's the one who sacrificed himself so that we could wear white robes. First, he says, the root and descendant of David, which is a metaphor drawn from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 10, where it says, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a banner for his peoples. Now, the word banner we think about sort of as advertising, but a banner at this time was a protection and a military metaphor. What this is saying is he is David's offspring and the Messiah warrior. I mean, this is startling. You know, where you see him as the lamb primarily throughout Revelation, and now he's saying at the end, he is the divine warrior Messiah. He adds David's offspring, which he is the fulfillment of the Davidic messianic hope. The second title, the bright morning star, is also messianic, which is the promised one from Numbers chapter 24, 17, where it says, quote, a star will come out of Jacob. What he's saying is everything God has promised throughout the ages, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, from Genesis all the way now till this book, he is the promised Messiah. From Genesis chapter 3, when the promise was made, there will come one who will crush Satan's head. Jesus is saying, I am him. He's the living hope. Then finally, look at the invitation. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Both stem from Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. This is an invitation for unbelievers to come and drink. It's an invitation for believers to come to the celebration and find your satisfaction in him. Now look at verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. When the Pentateuch was written and brought to a close, God says, do not add to what I command you, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. So this, this is the warning. You do not need to supplement revelation with your own material. And you do not need to reduce the material in Revelation so it's, it's more gentle. You don't need to supplement it. You don't need to reduce it. And true believers uh, will do neither. 
We do not add our own meanings. We do not take away God's meanings. We preach it clearly. Then finally, look at the closing prayer in verse 20. And it, it, is, it closes with a, with, a, with a prayer right before the benediction. And it says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then this would have been a prayer of the churches. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is from the, the Aramaic Maranatha, which means come, O Lord. And it appears in 1 Corinthians 16.22. Listen to how the Apostle Paul ends that letter to the church at Corinth. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he says, our Lord, come. Maranatha. And then look at the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Now I have three pages of final thoughts and applications. But I believe we have made sufficient application throughout the sermon. And so I'm going to end by reading one quote from James M. Hamilton Jr. who asks this. Does it look like God's word will be kept? Or does it look to you like all things will go on as they always have? Let me invite you to consider what a crushing defeat the crucifixion looked like on the Friday it happened and the Saturday that followed. If anything would prove that Jesus was not the Messiah, his dying nailed to a Roman cross would. Does it look to you like he will not come again? It looked like his project had failed when they placed him in the tomb. Does it look to you like he will not triumph? It has seemed that way before. Does it look to you like the wicked will not be judged, like evil will hold the field, like sin cannot be overcome, like the world cannot be made new? Perhaps, but God wants to pull off dramatic reversals that are beyond anything we can imagine. When Jesus comes again, his enemies will be as surprised as the wicked were to find the tomb empty. When Jesus comes again for his own, his coming will be as startling and rejuvenating, as thrilling and heartening, as enlivening and reassuring as was his resurrection from the dead. Soli Deo Gloria, he says. To God be the glory. I'm going to invite our worship team forward. And I believe it is appropriate that we finish this Revelation series by singing, How Great Thou Art. God on the throne and the Lamb who was sacrificed are the central and centering vision of the entire book. And so we're going to sing this vertical praise to God, or How Great Thou Art, together. So if you would please stand with me as I pray. And we will be led by our team.